Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guest is Nathan Tyson, who is the lyricist for Tuck Everlasting, which is playing November 28th to December 30th, 2018, at the Lucy Stern Theater down in Palo Alto as part of Theater Works. Nathan Tyson is a composer and lyricist, lyricist of the Burnt Part Boys, which played off-Broadway. There are several other shows, writes songs for Sesame Street and The Electric Company, and is the lyricist for a show called Paradise Square, which will open at the end of the month at Berkeley Rep., But first, let's talk about the show Tuck Everlasting. Now, it was a 1975 book, a young adult novel, what they'd call a young adult novel, which became a 2002, 2003, somewhere in their film, Mm -hmm. and then about 12 years later became your musical. What brought you to Tuck Everlasting? Tuck Everlasting was required reading for me in fourth grade at Lowell Elementary School in Salina, Kansas. It was the book that made me want to read more books. That story stuck with me. You know, it's a beloved story that is still being taught around the country. And as I started to grow up and I started to become more interested in theater, I revisited the book in college. And I realized that the book, it reads like a play. The scenes are all there. There's music at the heart of it, so there's a reason that it should be turned into a musical. So actually, I've had the dream since I was in college to turn this into a musical. When I went to grad school, where I met Chris Miller, we went to the Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program at NYU. After we wrote The Burnt Part Boys, we started making a list of dream projects. And believe it or not, on the top of both of our lists was Tuck Everlasting. Let's go back and talk briefly about what this story is. It's about Not aging and immortality. Yeah. Okay, so we're uh, turn-of-the-century New England, 11-year-old girl named Winnie Foster. She lives with her mother and her grandmother. She's never allowed basically out of the house or definitely not passed for front lawn. It's a suffocating life. She dreams of adventure. She dreams of being able to go out into the world. And one day she's had enough and she runs away. And she runs away actually into the woods that her family owns. And she finds a young boy there drinking from a spring. And this boy's name is Jesse Tuck. He's 17 years old. But we come to find out he's not 17. He's 104 years old. And the spring that he's drinking from granted his family um, immortality. And she goes on this adventure with Jesse. She then meets the Tucks. It's an amazing adventure story. She falls in love with Tuck. She has the family that she's never had. And at the end of the story, she is forced to decide whether or not she wants to drink from the spring and live with the Tucks or embrace a mortal life. And the bad guy is someone who wants... The bad guy is a character called the man in the yellow suit. We never learn his name. 
he has heard rumors, whispers in the wind about this family that has lived forever, but he doesn't know the secret. And he has dedicated his life to finding out the secret. And he keeps getting closer and closer. And of course, throughout the play, he does find out what it is. And once he finds out it's water, he has this dream of, of course, selling the water, drinking it, of course, for himself, and then selling the water and becoming rich forever. This story, which, of course, you became enamored of as a kid and wanted to stay with, it became a film in 2003. Was the film similar to the book? I only saw the film once. Of course, I wanted to see the movie. It had an amazing cast. William Hurt plays Pa Tuck. I think Sissy Spacek plays Ma Tuck. My issue with that film is that they made Winnie, instead of an 11-year-old girl, they made her a 16-year-old girl. So the love in the book, it's more of a friendship between Jesse Tuck and Winnie, and we dream of what they could possibly be, but it never gets anywhere close to any sort of physical relationship. In the movie, they embraced more of a romantic relationship between the two of them, and for me, it didn't work. Once I got the job, strictly I, I stayed away from that movie, and so I am... You know, I don't want to take anything from it accidentally. So the two of you, Chris Miller and you, yeah. you began thinking about this, but you guys did not write the libretto. We did not. It's actually a great story. After we had some success with the Burnt Part Boys, we were asked to pitch ideas for possible Broadway musicals to Beth Williams, who at that point was working with a production company called Broadway Across America. She said, come in, pitch us a show. We went in and we pitched Tuck Everlasting. And we said, this is going to be a fantastic show. You can actually do it. At that point, we pitched it as an eight-person musical because the book really only has a, you know, it's a small group of characters in it. And she loved the pitch. And she said, thank you very much. But of course, we didn't have the rights. And we needed a producer with money and power to try and do that. So you know, fingers crossed that they could help us get the rights. And here's where the kismet comes in. That night... She's having drinks with a different producer, producer named Barry Brown, who produced the original La Caja Full on Broadway. And he said, so I'm working on a new project. I just got the rights to this book. And he slides a book across the table, and it is Tuck Everlasting. Same day. And so Beth Williams said, well, I know the guys that should write it. Of course, Barry didn't know us at all, so we had to convince Barry that we were the right writers and that you know we had to write spec songs, and there were lots of other writers being considered. But the good news was, at the end of the day, we got the job. Robert Kelly of TheaterWorks mentioned that there was a connection in the early days with TheaterWorks. Yes. We've worked with TheaterWorks several times. They have been absolutely wonderful and really have supported our careers. And they're actually developing. They commissioned us to write a new piece that we're going to be back at TheaterWorks at the end of January working on that. So this was somewhere between eight and ten years ago. We are working on one of their new writers' festivals, and we had just gotten the job for Tuck Everlasting. And although we were working on a different project at that point, the playwright was in L.A. and could only come every couple days. So when he wasn't there to work with us, because we're at the very early stages of that project, we were writing songs for Tuck, exploratory songs. And we wrote two songs that are actually still in the show. So, yeah, when we had free time, we're like, well, let's let's write a couple Tuck, tuck Everlasting songs. So how did the librettist come into it? Once we convinced Barry that we should be the writers of the piece, they then put together the rest of the creative team. So they selected Claudia Shear to write the book, and they hired Casey Nicola, who was just coming off of Draws a Chaperone at that point, to direct the musical. 
to suddenly find yourself in the company of really experienced Broadway hands like yeah. Nicola must have been an extraordinary experience. Like, holy cow. It was a dream come true. I've never worked with a director like that. What was genius about it, and I really loved it, is that, first of all, we were challenged by the producers to not make it an eight-person show, to find a way to make the show a big old Broadway musical, to have an ensemble. And the second that you have an ensemble, you know, the challenge, I think, for writers is that, like, you don't want them to be merry villagers singing about the weather. (laughs) You've also got a problem in that the entire story is based on a secret that only a few people hold. Right, right. And what we learned through many, many drafts is that you kind of have to drop that secret pretty quickly because the fun as an audience member is to know the secret that other characters don't. To withhold it from the audience is not fair and actually less dramatic. So how did you manage to bring in all these other characters? Let me jump back really quick because I'll just talk a little bit about working with Claudia and Casey. Talk Everlasting, the book can be... A little delicate. It can be a little homespun, and you know that we wanted to bring some some edge to it, jokes at whenever possible. And so they brought in Claudia, who, you know, who is this like? She's got a potty mouth from Brooklyn, and she's just one of the most fascinating, amazing people I've ever worked with. And it's such an awesome writer. She can write about anything. She's also like the most well-read person I've ever met. And then they brought in Casey, who, you know, clearly wanted to try to uh, incorporate as much dance as possible. But that was the first project I ever worked on where the director was there from day one. So he played a major role. Absolutely. He helped us structure every single part of the piece, which meant by the time, man, it was probably two years before we finally had a developmental step where we actually put actors, we got actors from behind music stands and let them start moving. He staged the thing in a week because he knew how it was going to move. He'd been with us through the whole thing. There's a ballet toward the end. There's a ballet at the end of the show. The big question at the end of the show is deciding whether or not Winnie is going to drink this water. And the book ends with an epilogue where we jump 60 years. And Tree Gap, New Hampshire is now Tree Gap, New Hampshire in the 1960s. And and a car drives by and there's streetlights and there's electricity and there's music playing. And we just felt that doing that on stage would have just maybe been the lamest choice of all time. You don't want like a fake car driving across the stage. We had to find a way to earn this jump in time. And believe it or not, in the first couple meetings, Casey Nicola knew that he wanted to tell the story of Winnie's decision and that jump in time through dance. We always knew that we were going to do it. And when we would do readings of the show, we would get to the ballet moment and Casey had like written a little story. And we just kind of read the story of what he imagined happening on stage. And it was always moving. And then once he finally put it up on its feet, I mean, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking and glorious and a celebration of life and unlike anything I'd ever seen before. So you put this thing together and it's supposed to open in Boston, but it doesn't? Yes. It opens in Atlanta. Yes. What happened? The story I was told, we were supposed to go to the Imperial Theater in New York after our Boston tryout. From what I know, it seems like a lot of these decisions as far as who's going to get a theater in New York, it's a lot of like, you know, handshakes. It's not a lot of like physical contracts. It's like, I'm going to give you this theater. Well, all of a sudden, Cameron McIntosh decided that he wanted to bring back this revival of a little musical called Les Miserables. And we got bumped. And at that point, there wasn't another theater available. And that was it. So we lost that step of development. And so we had to wait another year. This was, of course, heartbreaking. This was going to be my first musical. I was very excited to go to Boston. Having said that, at the end of the day, 
I think we needed the time. We ended up doing another draft of the show, wrote a couple more songs, and then we got to go to the Alliance in Atlanta. We did the tryout there. It was well-received, did a lot of changes. And then we got the Broadhurst, which is a smaller, more intimate theater, and it was perfect for our show. But. But it didn't run. We also (laughs) opened the same season of a little show called Hamilton. When Robert Kelly told me that that they were doing Tuck, I said, but wait a second, that was kind of a Broadway flop. What happened? He said, well, it just wasn't properly received. But he said that the reviews were decent. I start this by saying I don't read reviews. I don't like to give critics that kind of power, mostly because I've read great runs and I've also read, once I read like my first really bad one, I was like, I don't need to go through this anymore. Right. You know what I mean? I'm just going to write what I write and trust my friends and trust my colleagues. I do know that we got a rave in the Times and we were a critic's pick. I do know that, unfortunately, at that point, that wasn't enough. I think one of the challenges, we opened right before the Tonys and before schools got out. And this is a family show. And I think if we would have been able to keep going, we closed before schools got out. So, like, we didn't get all of those kids, all of that audience, and the family audience that I think could have kept us going through the summer. It was heartbreaking. I, I don't make those decisions just write the songs, and I was very proud of it, and it was sad to see it go. But the good thing is that once a show vanishes from Broadway, it can get licensed. So it's been done in several other places since then, or is this the first? No, it has been done. This is one of the bigger professional theaters that has done the show. It has become wildly successful with high schools and community theaters, which is great. I think the first year that Samuel French said, you know, opened it up to licensing, we had 300 high schools try to go for it. You know, it's a big old show with a big old cast. And so that's been really fun. But yes, it it has definitely had a life. It's frozen, though. I mean, you can't go back and rework it, or can you? We absolutely could if we wanted to. A couple things happened. The first year that it was given to high schools, we actually only gave it to a handful of high schools and had the opportunity to go and work with them. And uh, and we tweaked a couple things, mostly through orchestrations. A A couple things were a little too hard for players to play. And the big conversation that we wanted to have with these high school drama teachers is how were they approaching the ballet? Can you do it if you don't have trained ballet dancers? And what we found is that they did find a way to make it work, and it still was just as moving, even though the the caliber of of dance talent might not have been there. What I'm very interested about Robert Kelly's production is that he's actually trimmed the cast down a little bit. It's a much smaller cast. I think instead of eight ensemble members, I think there's four. Of course, there's going to be dance in the show. From what I have heard, he is not doing a ballet. He's going to try to tell the story through a series of like moving vignettes and pictures, which I always thought that that would be another way to do it if a director was just a little too scared to try to get everyone to dance at the end of the piece. So he's definitely taking a new approach to the end of the show and I think through how the ensemble interacts throughout the piece. So although the text isn't changing, the approach is definitely changing with with Robert's piece and I'm very excited to see what he does. The other thing that did happen is now there is a TYA, which is Theater for Young Audiences version of the piece, and that is a 60-minute show. And we went down and worked with Nashville Children's Theater a couple months ago, and they premiered the first TYA version. So this is the story of Tuck Everlasting, but told with eight actors for a young audience. And so we trimmed the heck out of the piece. And, uh, you know, we, we went and worked with them and, you know, cut verses, changed some things, moved some things around. So there's also that version as well. Is there any chance that this thing could become a film? I hope so. 
I think it would make a fantastic film. Nathan Tyson, let's go back and talk a little bit about your career and also about a show, Paradise Square. You grew up in Kansas, Mm -hmm. which is not exactly a hotbed of musical theater. That is very true. Although, I have to say, this little town in the middle of the state of Kansas called Salina, Kansas, had just a real support for the arts. There's a very strong community theater there. The high school as well and the junior high, they believe in the arts. And there's a strong band and orchestra and especially theater. I think I was also just blessed with the best high school theater teacher ever who was my date to opening night on Broadway with with Tuck Everlasting. Shout out to Kate Lindsay. So I did actually have opportunities. I also grew up in kind of a Von Trapp family. My father's a minister. We would perform in churches all the time. So I had that kind of like performance bug and fell in love with the theater. I thought I wanted to be a performer. I went to undergrad in performance. But I'd always been writing songs. And kind of on a whim, I applied for the grad program at NYU. I was like, all right, you know, let's just focus on this for two years and just see if I could make a living writing musicals if it makes me happy and it sure did I'm still paying off those loans but uh, (laughs) it was worth it Uh, were you in a band? yeah I was in a band my high school band was called Classic Yellow named after the mustard bottle what did you did you just sing or did you play guitar? I sang and played guitar and wrote songs yeah what kind of music was it? Oh, I mean, at that point, like, what was popular was, like, Blues Traveler and Dave Matthews Band. So this is, like, 1995. So we were definitely, like, folk rock. And you performed doing that and had fun doing it. Absolutely, yeah. But when you came to New York, it must have been quite a shock to get out of Kansas, or wasn't it? It was an absolute shock. I'm glad that I went after four years of college. I was ready to go to New York at 21. And I was ready to really focus, too. I mean, I didn't get a great education in college. I had a great college experience. And that experience was, you know, teaching me to, like, stop trying to want to perform and, like, really focus on songwriting. I loved that grad program. It was was the best. And that's where you learned a lot more about lyrics, I guess. Absolutely. Given that you're also a composer, does it sometimes bother you that someone else is writing the music and you're thinking, hmm? That's a great question. Actually, no. And you know what? I wouldn't I wouldn't call myself a composer. I think I'm a songwriter. You know, I love to strum the guitar and, and write a song every once in a while. But when it comes to musical theater, I mean, the litmus test for me, when I write a lyric, I always hear a melody. I can't not hear like a rhythm and a melody. But if the composer's rhythm and melody is better when I give them the lyric, then of course I should be working with this person. And when I found Chris Miller, who, you know, we've been writing together now for 19 years. First of all, he also, he's he's the son of a preacher. We're the same age. We, we grew up listening to the same kind of music. Our just aesthetic is very, very similar. And uh, the way that he set my words was glorious. Which came first for you? I mean, the, the music, the lyrics, do you sit at a piano like Rogers and Hammerstein or what? What I loved about Chris is that when we first started writing together, it was always in the room. We, We shared the piano bench. I would scribble a little bit. He would write a little bit. It was always just like, let's block out three hours of time and see what happens. Now, after 19 years, we have a shorthand. And that shorthand is is usually this. We talk about the song moment. We brainstorm maybe hooks, chorus, song titles. I then go off and I write a lyric. I never write a full lyric. I write maybe two sections, an A and a B. I then give it to him. Because inevitably, once he like starts to set it to music, the structure's going to change. He's going to want to change the rhyme. He's going to want to try to move things around. 
He'll then look at it musically, and then we'll discuss the next step. All right, let's do two A's, then a B, then another A, and then let's maybe try a bridge here. I'll then flesh out the full lyric, and then he will flesh out the music. That's usually how it goes. Now, on a show like Amelie, which is a piece I worked on, actually Berkeley Rep, um, sure. three years ago, that I worked on that with a different composer. His name is Dan Massey, and that was completely opposite. It was music first every single time, and then we would put the lyric on top of, of his melodies. Now, I know that Sondheim, for instance, will take the play and then pull out sections. That's the old Hammerstein routine. Is that how you would do it as opposed to just sticking in a song? Oh, absolutely. For instance, like with Tuck Everlasting, I mean, it was very clear. You find the low-hanging fruit first, of course. There is a moment in the show and in the book where Pa Tuck takes Winnie Foster out onto a rowboat and explains to her the circle of life. It's called The Wheel. And like you read it and you can imagine this man talking to this young girl on this beautiful pond on this boat and singing about how the world, the earth keeps turning and this is a, a wheel that, that the tucks are not on, you know? And so it reads like poetry. And so, of course, we knew like, well, that has to be a song. And I definitely just like pulled lines directly from Natalie Babbitt's text and made him rhyme, zhuzhed them a little bit. But no, we always are pulling from story. And a lot of times, especially with Claudia, we would all talk together and then she would write some sort of monologue. And she's a poet in her own right. I was like, I'm just going to take the good lines. I'm going to put them in caps and make them rhyme. <laughs> Uh, when you're doing this, are you still thinking about that wanting song at the beginning and the 11th hour number, or is that kind of shot these days? I think it's all still there. You know, you might not call it the I want song, but you definitely, you need a song at the beginning of the show that tells the audience, this is the person that you want to follow and this is the thing that they want. And most importantly, that moment needs to endear the audience to that character. And even if like you find a more interesting way of doing that storytelling, I think even in an exploratory way, you have to write that song. Nathan Tyson, The Burnt Park Boys was the big hit, and that's put the two of you, you know, kind of in the picture. Uh, was that just like, let's write a musical and suddenly somebody liked it? You know, I actually wouldn't say it was a big old hit, but for us, it was our first off-Broadway show, and that was very exciting. And it does get done, although we should probably give it a new title. The Burnt Park Boys was our thesis at NYU. And we wanted to write basically The Goonies slash Stand By Me, the musical. But we were smartly told, because at that point we didn't have the money or an agent or anything to get us the rights to adapt something, we wrote an original story. And it's set in rural Virginia in the 1960s. It's about these boys uh, climbing up to an abandoned coal mine. I think the story was exciting at that point. It was, it was interesting to see a story of, of basically all, all boys. And I think most importantly, like Chris Miller's music, it sounds like no one else's music. People got excited about that, and it became a very good calling card for us. We got an agent because of that. We got Tuck because of that. And we've been working steadily since then. Is that how you got the gigs for uh, Electric Company and uh, Sesame Street? That was through Bill Sherman, who works a lot with Lin-Manuel Miranda. Lin is a friend, and also he was a big fan of our work. 
during the In the Heights days when he was interviewed, God bless him, he would just, they'd be like, what writers are you interested in? He'd always name drop us. And I think that got us some work. <laughs> you know, I also have to give a, a quick shout out um, when we're talking about Tuck. When we went to Broadway, we brought on an additional playwright. And it happens all the time to help us with some jokes, to help with some story and some structure. And he was a welcome addition to the family. His name is Tim Fetterly. So Tim is also one of the, the book writers on the show. How'd you get involved with Emily? Amelie, I got involved through the producer named Aaron Harnick, who grew up with Dan Massey, the composer. And uh, Dan Massey has a very popular folk band called Hem. I was a huge fan of that band. I was at a party. Aaron Harnick said, I'm going to do Dan Massey's first musical, and I just got the rights to Amelie. And uh, I know that Dan writes his own lyrics, and I just said, listen, if Dan ever wants to collaborate, please, please consider me. And a year later... Dan was looking for a collaborator. So I went to his place in Brooklyn and we wrote a couple songs together. And I know other people did too. I totally auditioned and ended up getting the gig. And it was a dream come true. And I, I love working with Dan. I think he's a, he's a real genius. So it opened in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. It clearly needed a little bit of work, tweaking. Mm-hmm. It got to Broadway and didn't make it. Was it a similar situation as Tuck, you think? I think so. I do think that the Berkeley version, looking back on it now, was the most successful version of the show. It was a little bit longer. It breathed a little bit more. It felt more organic. It felt more homespun. I think our Broadway version became a little flashy. There's always this push to try to like make it, make it bigger instead of making it unique. There's a couple songs I, that I wish we would have left in the piece, things like that. Having said that, I was very, very proud of the Amelie production, and I, I think that cast album sounds so good. The good news with Amelie is that it actually is going to have a big old life in Europe. There's going to be a German production uh, that opens on Valentine's Day, and then it's going to go to um, it's going to tour the UK in the spring. And the German producers actually saw the Berkeley production, oh. and they talked to us about bringing some of those songs back. So we're actually doing some big old rewrites and finally like making the script the version that we want it to be. So what happened was after Berkeley Rep, you kind of said, "Well, okay, we got to tweak it this way," and the producers said, "No, you have to tweak it that way." Yeah, I mean, producers. Absolutely Absolutely. You just get pressure from all sides. And everyone is trying to do the right thing. Everyone is trying to fix it. But sometimes the notes just became, we've got to trim it. We've got to trim it, trim it, trim it. We've got to make it 70 minutes instead of 84 minutes, you know. And I understand, like, there was no intermission in the show. And that was definitely on purpose because it's a very simple story and we couldn't find a place to to, to put an intermission. Having said that, we're going to try an intermission in this European production, um, which by doing that allows us to put in a couple more songs, which I think are going to really help the journey. And so then you could go back and do the tweaking that I mentioned. Because when I saw it, I'm going, it needs some tweaking. You could tell. Yes, definitely. And then you get it to a better version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we wrote a song for every moment in that movie. Because, I mean, the movie's genius. I, I absolutely love it. And every moment sings. So we just kept writing them and trying them out. And, you know, sometimes you just, you, you, lose, you lose songs too quickly. Nathan Tyson, what is Paradise Square and how did that come about? Paradise Square is a show that is opening at Berkeley Rep at the end of December. Excuse me, it starts, it starts previews. It is a show that is loosely, no, it's not loosely based. It is inspired by the songs of Stephen Foster. Stephen Foster is arguably America's first songwriter. And it tells the story of the draft riots that happened in New York City in the 1860s. 
And it specifically hones in on this neighborhood called the Five Points, which is an area that is no longer there. Gangs um, of New York. Yeah, Gangs of New York famously told a story about that time. It tells a story about this saloon, and Stephen Foster, believe it or not, was living in the Five Points at that time. I was brought onto the project. Larry Kerwan of the Irish punk band Black 47 had the original idea, and he wrote um, an off-Broadway version of the show, which at that point was called Hard Time several years ago. And then it was optioned by a producer, and now it's turning into a big old Broadway musicale. So this one, hopefully, again, will make it to Broadway. Yes. Perhaps do a yeah. little better than the other one. The creative team is unbelievable. Uh, Moises Kaufman is directing the piece. Oh. Bilty Jones is doing the choreography. And Jason Howland is doing the music. Jason Howland recently, he did the arrangements for Beautiful and also did Little Women. And he's the way that he is reimagining Stephen Foster's catalog is jaw-dropping. But you're writing new lyrics to the songs. Absolutely. At that point, bridges, as far as I know, did not exist in songs. <laughs> they are A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, right? But this man wrote 300 songs and died penniless at the age of 37. So there's this unbelievable catalog of material to take from. And our job has been to like find these gems and then, of course, like tweak the lyrics and make them active and try to tell a story. It's not a jukebox musical because it, the songs all. are different. Absolutely. I mean, is there an O oh Susanna in there? There is an O oh Susanna <laughs> in there. Yes, there is. And you're still working on that. Yes, d- very much so. In fact, I'm going to rehearsal right after we have this conversation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a couple of quick questions then. You're married to a composer lyricist. Have the two of you ever thought about working together? We have considered. Yeah, her name is it's Kate Kerrigan. And believe it or not, I met Kate at TheaterWorks, that same writing process where we wrote those first couple of songs for Tuck. Kate was here with her writing partner. We were both in relations at the time. But uh, that's where I met her, which is amazing. And now we have a three-year-old daughter. We have decided at this point, because it takes so long to develop musicals, and you just never know if they're going to be successful or make any sort of money, that it's important for us to diversify our portfolio. So <laughs> we're writing as many shows as, as possible separately in the hopes that one of them <laughs> will make us some real money. I do believe, though, because she is such a talented writer and just there's no crazy in her at all. She's so even keel that I think that we could write something together, and I'm sure we will at some point. What is Stillwater? Stillwater was a kind of a reimagining of Oklahoma, but took place in modern-day Stillwater, Oklahoma, that I wrote with uh, my band. I, I still play in a band, and the band is the new band is called Joe's Pet Project. And I took a bunch of our songs and uh, and kind of noticed some like interesting structural parallels between that and Oklahoma, and structured this new piece that we developed at the Casey Rep. I think that's probably as far as it's going to go at this point. It would need a, a much bigger rewrite, but it was really exciting because the band was on stage. We played. We told the story. It was fun to like get up on stage. Quick political question about Kansas. You mentioned before that what got you started was the great schools in Kansas. Mm-hmm. And then what happened was Brownback cut back all of the money. Yeah. And the result of that was a teacher rebellion and now Democrats in Kansas. How closely have you been following that? 
unfortunately, I've not been following it very closely. I'm very, very proud of Kansas for the election that just happened and what they did. I do know the small little bubble of Salina, which is still a very red community, there's money for the arts there. And I don't know if it's become more difficult for them to raise it, but I know I have other friends that are that are teaching in Kansas, teaching theater and music, and they do not have the funds that they need to, to do the productions that they want. So you were there at the right place at the right time. Absolutely, yeah. But now maybe there's kind of a chance for other people from Kansas to move on because now there's a little, there may be more money coming in. I sure hope so. I mean, there's, there's, there's such a debt now that I feel like they have to get out of first. But uh, yeah, fingers crossed. Speaking of politics, uh, have you ever thought about moving some of your shows in the more political direction or subtextually are they? That's interesting. Uh, I think you should definitely bring in some of the creative team for Paradise Square because this this is a story that needs to be told now and there are some very fascinating parallels um, as far as, you know, this is a story of, of, of immigrants that have freshly come off the boat that are in New York City and then uh, are at the bottom rung of the economic level and are then are asked immediately to go fight for this country that they just moved to. And that's fascinating. But I would say, personally, I, I don't consider myself a political writer. At all. No. But of course- if I found the right story. It's all about the story. It's all about the story. And if the story is political, then you go that direction. If yeah. it's not, you're, it's not. Yeah. Uh, how many projects are you working on now? Five. Five you, projects. You have to, and that's, it's, it's frustrating. But you have to do it because it takes so long to develop these things. So you always have to have, you know, you're keeping a lot of plates spinning. So Nathan Tyson with five projects going, and that includes the next one, which is Paradise Square. Yep. That there are four others that are in various stages of development. Yeah, including uh, one being developed by TheaterWorks uh, Palo Alto. Chris Miller working with you on all of them? Uh, Chris is working with me on two of them. And we so, definitely sleep around. <laughs> this is going to be a weird question. You could say, I don't want to answer it. Okay. How do you make a living? I will tell you this. I have only been able to make a living as a songwriter without a day job for the past four years, so, which means I was in New York City doing all of this hustling, working all of these shows for 15 years with, with a day job. What was the day job? The day job was I would go and sing to very rich babies on the Upper East Side and Upper West Side. I was a man with a guitar and a rolling suitcase full of puppets and parachutes. And I would do music entertainment for kids. I would go into people's living rooms and, and play my guitar and sing songs. Oh, that sounds like the subject of a music. <laughs> yes. Oh, I've got stories. That's for sure. Talk Everlasting, playing November 28th to December 30th, 2018, down at TheaterWorks, Lucy Stern Theater. More information, you can go to theaterworks.org. Paradise Square opens at the end of December at Berkeley Rep. And for more information there, you go to berkeleyrep.org.